My name is Rick Renner, and I'm in Lower Ephesus on the Harbor Road, which leads from the harbor right into the heart of ancient Ephesus. You'll see directly behind me the great theater, which fans out on the mountaintop. This was a theater which seated 24,000 people. This is where the silver workers gathered when they revolted against the preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 19. This city was quite a spectacle of power. God's power was literally poured out in this place as the Apostle Paul ministered here for three years, and during his ministry, the church was established, and it became the biggest church of the first century, and in fact, really the biggest church for almost 2,000 years, a massive church filled with power and filled with doctrinal instruction, and from the city of Ephesus, churches were launched all over the province of Asia. It was just a mighty and magnificent church, the church of Ephesus. There's never been another church like this. And when Paul was finished here, Timothy became the pastor of the church. And later on in life, the apostle John moved near here where he became the bishop of the whole province of Asia. He oversaw all the churches. He oversaw all the pastors who lived in the region. And it was there, here in the city of Ephesus, in his home, that John wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and lived until the time of his death. This simply was an amazing site where God's grace was marvelously poured out. And that's amazing to me because it was such a wicked site. This was a city of paganism, sexual debauchery. It was really naturally a horrible place when you consider how pagan it was. But in the midst of this pagan place, God poured out his grace. And isn't that what the Bible tells us in Romans chapter five, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And I want to tell you, it doesn't matter where you are today. Even if you're in a bad place, you're in a place where God wants to pour out his grace, just like he did in Ephesus. And today I want to talk to you about the role of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Stay tuned for a teaching you can trust, a message that will inspire, strengthen, and equip you with vital insights and understanding from the Word of God. Here is Rick. I've been waiting for you. Today we're going to jump right into Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1 to see Christ's message to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was a remarkable church. It has held a place in church history like no other church. It experienced the amazing grace of God in a very dark environment. And yet Christ had some very serious things to say to that church, which have great relevance for you and for me. And we need to hear it and we need to understand it and respond to it. So today we're going to begin seeing that in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. And today I'm going to really deal with the word church. What does the word church mean? This is really going to be a revelation for you. But first, I want to tell you that I'm offering you my series called Christ's Message to Ephesus. It's a 10-part series. It comes in multiple formats. It's based on these programs and it comes with a marvelous study guide that has all the Greek words and definitions that I use in these teachings with principles and points. It's great for your personal study life or for you to use in a study group. I really want to encourage you to order it today. And I'm also offering you my big book called A Light in Darkness, Seven Messages to the Seven Churches. This particular volume deals with Christ's message to John on Patmos, Ephesus, and Smyrna. It is just packed 785 pages with illustrations, photographs, which our team took 
in all these ancient sites. This is like a treasure trove of information. If you want to really understand the New Testament church, you need to get this book. You know, when I wrote this book, professionals said, well, it's so big, people will never buy it. You know what? People buy it all the time. People love this book because it is filled with information. It puts the whole history and the life of the New Testament at their fingertips. Now, I doubt that you'll read it all in one setting. I wouldn't, but I would use it all the time as a reference. And that's really what it is. Listen to what the director of the Museum of Pergamum said about this book. One of the most professional books ever produced on these subjects. On the back of the book, I'm quoting from the former director of the museum in Ephesus itself. And listen to what that director said. My shelves are filled with historical works on this subject, but not one of them compares to this volume. That is what professionals say, archaeologists, historians. It's just amazing. And it's written in such a way that you can really understand it. And thousands of people could attest that this book has made a difference in their understanding of the New Testament. Understanding the historical context of the New Testament is vital for you to understand the writings of the New Testament. So please order this. I know it's going to make a difference in your life. And today, I'm going to be reading directly from the pages of this book because I cannot improve on what I wrote. So I'm going to get ready, and I'm going to open to page 371. But let's begin by reviewing quickly what we covered in yesterday's program. Yesterday we were in Revelation chapter 1. John's on the Isle of Patmos. And John tells us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. We saw that this word was is the Greek word genomai, which in this case describes a transitioning from one realm into another realm. It describes something that takes you off guard or by surprise. And by using this word was, the Greek word genomai, John says, I transitioned from one realm into another realm. I didn't anticipate it. It took me off guard and by surprise. And then he describes the realm. He said, I was in the spirit. In the spirit would be better translated. I was in the spirit realm or I suddenly came to find myself in a spiritual dimension. And I want to say again, John was in a bad place. He was in a cave on the Isle of Patmos. Could there be anything worse than being in a cave on the Isle of Patmos? He felt abandoned by society, abandoned by everyone, but he was not abandoned by Jesus. When he was in that cave, suddenly the spirit realm opened. John saw into a spiritual dimension. In verse 10, he tells us he came to find himself in another dimension, a spiritual dimension, where he saw Jesus like he had never seen Jesus before. If you're in a tough place, you are in a great place to have a brand new revelation of Jesus Christ and to hear Jesus say things to you that you've never heard him say before. He's just waiting to penetrate your darkness, to penetrate your world, to penetrate your dark place, to bring you the message and the vision that you need for right now. Listen to what John says in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Verse 11, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Then he lists the seven churches. Unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, unto Pergamum, unto Thyatira, unto Sardis, unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. These were the seven primary churches in Asia. These were the biggest and the most influential churches. But Jesus began by addressing the church in 
Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. So very quickly, let's go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 and 7 to 7 and read what Christ had to say in its entirety. Listen to what it says, verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Verse 2. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. Verse 3. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and hast not fainted. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come into thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. Verse 6, that this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, the word hate is a very strong word. Jesus uses it here in this verse twice. Jesus says, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Verse 7, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's a lot in these verses. They are packed with revelation. But we're going to begin in verse 1. And in verse 1, Jesus says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. He uses this word angel. Who is the angel of the church in Ephesus. Is this a real heavenly angel or is this someone else? Well, let me read to you from my notes. The word angel is the Greek word angelos. The word angelos describes either a human messenger or a heavenly angel. It is one who is sent on a special mission, one who is dispatched to perform a specific assignment and often is used to denote a delegate or dignitary. It can picture the role of a pastor, a messenger of God. Now, is this really a heavenly angel or was this the pastor? Well, let me read to you from page 371 in my big book called A Light in Darkness. Stay with me. The word angel is the Greek word angelos, which is most often translated angel in the New Testament, but it's also at times translated messenger. Now listen clearly. This is very important. Although local churches may have angels that watch over and protect them, it is unlikely that the word angel here refers to heavenly messengers in these verses. Jesus was addressing the human messengers of the seven churches, the individuals, most notably the pastors who had oversights of the congregations. These messengers were the passengers of the seven churches. Now listen carefully, this is very important. It is important to note that not a single instance is ever recorded in the New Testament in which angels teach, rebuke, correct, or preach to the church of Jesus Christ. Thus, to interpret the word angel, the Greek word angelos, as a heavenly angel creates serious theological inconsistencies. Jesus was in fact addressing the seven pastors who each gave oversight to one of the local churches. And by delivering the messages to the pastors first, are you listening careful? By delivering the messages to the pastors first, Jesus demonstrated that he honors and does not bypass spiritual authority that he has set in the local church. Before the church heard the message, Jesus wanted the pastor to hear it first. 
It then became the local pastor's God-given responsibility to deliver that divine message to the congregation that was under his care. There is no doubt in my mind or the mind of most scholars about this word angel in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, the Greek word angelos. It does not refer to heavenly messengers, heavenly angels, but in this case, it refers to the human messengers or the pastors who had oversight of each of the seven churches. He was addressing the pastor of the church. However, I think it's worth us considering what angels do. What do real angels do? What are the role of real heavenly angels? Let me read to you from my book. The Bible never explicitly states how many angels God created, but Hebrews 12, 22 says there are an innumerable company of angels, which by the way, means we shouldn't be surprised if we see one once in a while. There's an innumerable company of angels in the church. But the Apostle Paul strongly warned against a preoccupation with angels. So-called angelic preaching and teaching was viewed as one of the primary sources of false doctrine in the early church. During the first century, much of the false teaching Paul combated was due to so-called revelations that purportedly came directly from angels. For example, the doctrinal problems that were emerging in the church at Colossae could be traced to claims that angels had appeared with new teachings and revelations. So it is no surprise that many cults and sects in existence today were also formed on the basis of angelic teachings and revelations. Angels are not assigned with a responsibility to teach or to preach. That is a human responsibility given to fivefold ministry gifts. It is never given to angels to preach and to teach. You just don't find it in the Bible. And if you find that someone has a revelation or a teaching they got from an angel, you need to seriously consider about rejecting that message because angels don't do that. Following is a list of activities that angels do perform. As you carefully read this information, note there isn't a single record anywhere in the New Testament that encourages or endorses the concepts that angels are charged with preaching or teaching God's Word. There is also not one single instance in which God sends angels to bring correction or rebuke to a local congregation of believers. That's just beyond the scope of an angel's responsibility. Well, what do angels do? Well, the Bible's filled with information about angels. And I'm going to quickly tell you eight things that angels do. And I cover 15 pages of it in this book. You need to get this book. Angels meet physical needs. Angels give strength. Angels give supernatural guidance. Angels provide protection and deliverance. Angels make divine announcements. That doesn't mean they teach and preach. Angels are repeaters. They are not preachers. They're repeaters. They repeat verbatim what God says. They don't have the ability to expand on what God says or to teach on what God says. They are repeaters. They're not preachers or they make divine announcements. Angels perform superhuman feats. Angels worship. And angels release God's judgment. Those are the eight primary functions of angels. Let me say it again. Angels meet physical needs. Angels give strength. Angels give supernatural guidance. Angels provide protection and deliverance. Angels make divine announcements. Angels perform superhuman feats. Angels worship. Angels release God's judgment. Those are specific duties of angels that are very well described within the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament.
So when we come to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus, it is not describing a heavenly angel. It's describing a human messenger. And I really like this because I tell pastors all the time, you're really an angel to your church. Pastors are angels. They're heaven-sent messengers who speak on behalf of the Lord. The Lord speaks to them first. It is the responsibility of the pastor, the angel of the church, to process the message and then to pass it on to the congregation. Wow, that's important. So now we understand what the word angel means in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. But what else does verse 1 say? Notice it says, under the angel of the church of Ephesus. What do we mean when we hear or say the word church? Well, if you grew up in a church context, you think about a congregation or you think about a little building down the street, you think of the church. But what did New Testament believers hear when they heard the word church? What did that word church mean to them? Let me read to you. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. It's a compound of two words, the word ek and the word kaleo. I'm going to explain this to you in just a moment, but let me briefly give you a definition. This word church, the Greek word ekklesia, describes a called, separated, prestigious assembly. A called, separated, prestigious assembly. It was used to denote a prestigious assembly of distinguished Athenian citizens who determined laws, debated public policy, formulated new policy, argued and ruled in judicial matters, elected the chief magistrates of the land, decided who should be banished. They were selected from society and invited to join this assembly, and it was a great honor. In the New Testament, it depicts the body of believers who have been called out, called forth, selected, and assembled to be God's representatives in every town, city, state, or nation. It is a body called to make decisions that affects the atmosphere of a region. That's what the word church means, the Greek word ekklesia. Now, this is so loaded, this word. I wish you had this book so you could really understand what the word ekklesia means. But let me read to you. The word church, the Greek word ekklesia, is a compound of two words, ek and kaleo. The word ek primarily means out, ek out. It can signify an exit, such as when a person leaves one room to relocate to another room. It can also carry the idea of separation, a point that is very important when considering the church. The second part of the word is kaleo. The basic meaning of kaleo is to beckon or to call, to invite or to summon. But when the two words are compounded, the new word ekklesia literally means those that are called out. Now stay with me, I'm going to keep reading to you. As noted before, the word ek means out, the word kaleo means to call, However, when the words ek and kaleo are combined, together the meaning means to call out, to summon forth. The word ekklesia describes an entire assembly of individuals who are called out, called forth, and separated, and who therefore hold a position of honor and privilege. Wow. It's a privilege to be a member of the church. The earliest appearance of this word was in ancient Athens, where it was used only in a political context. The early meaning of ekklesia is significant because it was still in force when the New Testament writers used this word to describe the church. The New Testament writers understood the meaning of this word. There's no doubt that the writers of the New Testament clearly understood the meaning of the word ekklesia, the word church, a meaning that was far more profound than the one attributed to it today. 
Anyone with a knowledge of the Greek language in the first century understood what this word meant, and that would have included the Apostle Paul who used this word. It was no accident that the New Testament writers used ecclesia to depict the local church and its role in God's plan. Listen to this. Delegates, who were members of the ecclesia, were called out from their private lives and summoned to take their seats in this distinguished assembly. The Athenian ecclesia was considered the most prestigious group of people in the land, and people counted it a great privilege and honor to participate in this illustrious body. Its decisions were so far-reaching that they affected every aspect of public and private life. It's very powerful when you understand what this word means. The Athenian ecclesia was a renowned institution throughout the entire Greek-speaking world. Wow. It's clear why New Testament writers chose the word ecclesia to describe God's people. The usage of this word unmistakably means that a local church is a body of individuals who've been called out, called forth, and separated for the purposes of God. Paul and the other New Testament writers bravely used this word because they understood the church had a serious and divine purpose in the earth. We are honored to be called out and to be a member of the church. There's so much in this word church. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Under the angel of the church, we as the church are a prestigious people, called out from darkness, called out from a life of sin, separated, separated to be a part of a prestigious body of believers endowed with so much authority and so much power that we can make the ruling decisions of the land. And think about it. In the context of the New Testament, it was a political word. The writers of the New Testament understood that. This had political ramifications. The church was not to be a little group of believers they hid in a corner or hid in darkness. They really believed they had ruling power and through prayer and through preaching and through their actions, they had the ability to totally affect the atmosphere of a city or a nation. They were God's ruling force in every place where they were located. That is the church. And the church was presided over by an angel. And now we've seen in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, the angel was the pastor or the overseer of the local church. So in Revelation 2 verse 1, it says, Under the angel of the church of Ephesus write. And then Jesus begins to give his message to the church. And that's what we're going to see when we come back. There is so much in these verses. I don't want you to miss one of these programs because every program will contain an unfolding revelation for you of Christ to the church of Ephesus. And the same message applies to you and to me. Wow. I'll be back in just a moment. The Bible comes to life like never before with Rick Renner's book, A Light in Darkness. Step into the world of the New Testament as Rick Renner transports you to the ancient cities of the early church, revealing the relevance of Jesus' messages to the church then and why those messages still resonate for his church today. Rick reveals insight into the ancient world and the disturbing realities the early believers faced as the church began to flourish in a pagan world with unsurpassed detail. 
fascinating insights, and historical context, you'll have a greater appreciation and understanding of Scripture and how you should interpret it for today. This beautifully bound, 800-page, full-color biblical resource can be yours for $80. Features on-location photography with added artwork and illustrations to enhance the in-depth scriptural teaching that makes the New Testament come alive. When you call or go online today, you can also get Christ's message to Ephesus, an in-depth 10-part teaching series that delves deep into the message Jesus gave to the Ephesian church. The church of Ephesus was a successful church on the outside, but they had drifted from their first love of Jesus. Available in digital or physical format, starting at just $20. Rick uses this teaching series to remind you to return to your first love of Jesus. A light in darkness and Christ's message to Ephesus. Call now or go to renner.org to order. Hey friends, Denise and I are coming to an area near you very soon. On Sunday, July 24th, we're coming to Word of Faith International Church, Bishop Keith Butler in Southfield, Michigan. On Thursday, July 28th, Denise is having a women's meeting in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. On Sunday, July 31st, we're coming to Covenant Church to be with Jesse and Kathy Duplantis at Destrahan, Louisiana. On Sunday, August the 7th, we're coming to Victory Church to be with Pastor Jeanette Furry in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. On Sunday, August 14th, we're going to be at Radiant Church with Pastor Lee Cummings in Richland, Michigan. On Sunday, August 21st, we're going to be at Liberty Church in Fairfield, California with Pastor Richard West. On Thursday, August 25th, we're coming to River of Life Fellowship in Seaside, Oregon to be with Pastors Tolbert and Mary Jo Lovelady. On Sunday, August 28th, we're coming to Spokane Christian Center in Spokane, Washington with Pastor Rick Sharkey. On Sunday, September 4th, we're coming to Faith Family Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota to be with Pastors Michael and Vicki Bang. And on Sunday, September the 11th, we're coming to Madison, Alabama to Cornerstone Word of Life to be with Pastor Mark Garver. Please check our website for the most recent updates and information about these wonderful meetings. Today we've been looking at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, where Jesus says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. We've been focusing on the word angel and the word church. We saw the word angel really refers to the human messenger in every church, the one that has spiritual power, spiritual oversight. It is the pastor. Jesus addresses the pastor before he addresses the church. And I think it's important that Jesus calls the pastor an angel. You need to remember that your pastor is an angel. He was sent by God to be a blessing to you, and you need to look at him as a heavenly messenger in your life. He is one of the angels in your life. We saw the word church, the Greek word ekklesia, describes a prestigious body of believers called forth from darkness, called forth from a past life of sin, separated, and now they are an illustrious body with power to rule and to reign. That's what the word church means. The church was never intended to be a little group of believers that hid in a little building or just met privately. We were called to have power in this world. We are the church of the living God. This is so powerful. But I want to remind you that I'm offering you my series called Christ's Message to Ephesus. It's a 10-part series that comes in all kinds of formats. And I'm also offering you my big book called A Light in Darkness, Seven Messages to the Seven Churches. Father, in the name of Jesus, I speak a blessing to my friend today.
I thank you that today we can spend time in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. And Lord, I'm so thrilled that tomorrow we get to begin in verse 2. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember Ecclesiastes 8.4, where the word of a king is, there's power. Let God's word release its power in your life today. And I'll see you in the next program. Renner Ministries is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through every available media to the uttermost parts of the earth. Discover the many ways you can help us make a difference in lives around the world with the word of God. We invite you to partner with us in teaching, strengthening, and rescuing lives for the glory of God. Together, we can make a difference that will last throughout eternity. 